Welcome to Episode 9 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Fred Kenzie, resident at University of Mississippi Medical Center and current RSA at-large board member, speaks with AAEM board member Dr. Terry Mulligan, associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and director of the International Emergency Medicine Program and Fellowship. Today, Dr. Kensey and Dr. Mulligan discuss the importance of global emergency medicine development and how to build emergency care systems internationally. Welcome to another episode of the AAEM RSA podcast. I'm Fred Kensey Jr., a second year resident at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and co-vice chair of the RSA Education Committee. Today we're recording from the AAEM Scientific Assembly 2017 in sunny Orlando, Florida. We have with us today Dr. Terry Mulligan, who will be discussing global emergency medicine development. Dr. Mulligan hails from the University of Maryland, where he is Associate Professor at the School of Medicine. He also serves as a Director of the International Emergency Medicine Program and Fellowship. He's on the Board of Directors for AEM and is the past chair of the AEM Committee for International Medicine. He serves on a plethora of other committees as well, way too many to mention. We welcome him here to our podcast episode today. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. We're going to be hearing some really good information about global emergency medicine development. Well, again, thanks for the invitation, and I'm really happy to be able to talk about this topic. It's a topic I've kind of been obsessed by for the last 15 or 20 years, and it's a talk that I I really love to give. It's something that I'm interested in. And we get a lot of questions about, you know, your residency teaches you how to take care of the patients, but it doesn't teach you how to build the system. How do you actually build systems in other countries? So if we're going to talk about global emergency medicine development, we're going to ask the question, you know, how do you build an emergency care system? How do you build an emergency care system on a national scale or a regional scale, uh, for example, for Africa or for Europe or for South America? How do you do it on a global scale? You know, we think as emergency physicians, every patient in the world deserves to be taken care of by an emergency physician who's trained at how to take care of emergencies. But that's not the case right now. And so how do we fix that? How do we work with other countries? How do we learn from how emergency care systems have been built in other countries? Because we have a pretty good system here in the U.S., but it's definitely not perfect. And there are some countries that do pieces of what we do better than we do. I don't think it's going to be long before it's, it's possible that there will be countries that have a much better emergency system than, than what we have in the U.S. This idea of we can learn from each other as we interact internationally, this is a reality. It's not just a platitude. So how do you actually learn how to build emergency from place to place to place? That's been my subspecialty for the last 18 years or so. So what I got really interested in this is that during residency, I was exposed to doing some relief work and some international work in Guatemala and El Salvador. And then during residency, I found out there was a special uh, subspecialty program called the International Emergency Fellowship. Now a lot of them are called Global Emergency Medicine Fellowship or Global Acute Care Fellowships, but it's really a, a subspecialty in how do you build the system, not just how do you take care of the patients, but how do you build the system. 
And back when I did my fellowship, there were only five or six fellowships, and I think I was the sixth one to graduate. But now there are over 45 fellowships in international emergency or global emergency, and it's going up by two or three programs every year. Yeah, I think it's a popular topic, and it's, it's something that you know, I became interested in a long time ago. In my training, you know, I got exposed to a couple key pieces of information. And I think what we need to focus on is emergency is really needed in every country. It's not needed just in rich countries or in Western countries or in, in cities. It's actually needed everywhere you look around the world. And why is that? Why, why do we need emergency? Why bother? Well, I think it's because of what's happened in the last 100 years or so. There are four or five major things that have happened just in the last 100 years or less that have never happened before in all of human history. I think from the last 100 years or so, we've had major advances in in science and Mm -hmm. in technology and physics and obviously in automation and in industrialization. You know, we went from the Wright brothers flying the first airplane to being on the moon in less than 65 years. It's happening faster and faster. You think of all the advances that have happened just in, in science in general. But particularly in uh, in medicine, you know, back at the turn of the 1900s, we didn't have a good understanding of germ theory of disease. We didn't understand that, uh, you know, certain bacteria, viruses, fungus cause certain diseases. We didn't have a good uh, set of antibiotics. We didn't have good anesthetics. We didn't have a good molecular understanding of, of medicine. And if you compare that to now, the first time the DNA, human genome was sequence, it took uh, 11 years and about $2 billion, and now we can do it in three days, and it costs almost about $1,000. So things are happening at a faster and faster pace, not just in, in science, but in medicine. And a lot of that is you know, what has pushed the need for emergency. A couple other things that have happened is the world is now mostly urban. As of the year 2006, there are now more people in the world who live in cities than who don't live in cities. That transition happened in the USA back in about the 1930s or 40s, where we passed the 50% mark. It happened in most of Western Europe back in the 50s and 60s. But as of 2006, now most of the world lives in cities. And in some countries, like in the US or in Western Europe, it's approaching 60, 70, 80% of the countries live in cities. So if you think about 100,000 years of human evolution, where we were living in rural areas or in pastoral areas, or or we were roving bands of hunter-gatherers. And in the last only couple thousand years, we've started to move into cities, and now we have a majority urban population in the world. That changes your lifestyle, changes your job, it changes your physical activity, your eating habits, your Mm -hmm. uh, living habits, your social habits. And all of these things, of course, affect your disease patterns. So this is happening every country you look and urban populations are going up. Of course, world population is still going up. And we still have the places, for example, Central South America, Africa, India, parts of Asia, where they're at the beginning of their population explosion. Mm-hmm. So it's estimated right now there are about 7.5 billion people in the world. By 2050, there'll be about 12 or 13 billion. So that's an additional 6 billion people in the next 25 years. Five out of six of those new people will be in the Southern Hemisphere. They will be in cities. They will be in urban areas and not just cities, but megacities, these giant, giant cities. So if you think about world population is going to double in the next 25 or 30 years, and the majority of those people will be born in places that have very little to no medical systems development. 
you know, we have this huge tsunami wave of disease coming at us, and we have to get in front of it uh, or else we're going to get knocked over by it. So you have uh, urbanization happening. You have medical technology and medicine advancements. But we also have the gradual aging of the world's population. We have the fastest-growing segment of every population in the world is the oldest segment, meaning people who are 65 years or older. Uh, Right now it's estimated the world population is about 12 or 13 percent above age 65. By the year 2030, it's estimated it'll be about 15 or 20 percent. And by 2050, it'll be one out of every four or five people will be 65 years or older. And we know that 65-year-olds, 75-year-olds, 85-year-olds have very different diseases than children or 15-year-olds or 20-year-olds. They have diseases that we don't yet know how to cure. They have diseases we know how to treat and manage, but we don't know how to fix diabetes or hypertension or heart disease and cancer yet. These trends are all kind of put together to show that emergency medicine services are really going to be in demand. That might be good for us because it it implies that there's some sort of job security. But it's actually, this is a a new global wave of disease that we've never seen before in human history. Uh, That's really the reason why we need to have emergency physicians. So if you look at WHO data, WHO data, particularly global burden of disease data, it all confirms this, that for all of human history, the number one cause of death has been infectious disease, communicable diseases, until this last century. Until this last century, starting in the 20s and 30s in uh, the Western world, happening in the 50s and 60s in in the uh, countries with middle income. But actually now, as of the 1990s and the early 2000s, now the number one cause of death in almost every country in the world is non-communicable disease, not communicable disease. There are only a handful of countries now where the number one cause of death is communicable disease. Now what we see is heart disease cancer, stroke, diabetes, trauma, being the number one causes of death and disability in the world. So this is a major transition. So people getting older, people not dying from infectious disease when they're under age one or under age five, people moving into cities, modern medicine and modern public health. All of this is adding up to a new wave of diseases, which is non-communicable disease, Mm -hmm. cancer, diabetes, trauma, stroke, and uh, heart disease. So that's all happened in the last 100 years or so, and it's happening country by country by country faster and faster, particularly in the last 50 years. As of 2010, six out of the 10 causes of death in the world are non-communicable diseases. Six out of the top 10, heart disease, stroke, lung disease, diabetes, trauma. But by 2030, it's estimated eight or nine out of 10 will be non-communicable disease. And if you just take one uh, road traffic collisions, which is number nine cause of death in the world right now, it's going to be number three cause of death in the world in the next 15 years. So, you know, all of this, when you put all the numbers together, right now two out of three causes of death are non-communicable diseases. And it's estimated, you know, eight out of 10 causes of death in the next 10, 15 years are going to be non-communicable diseases. And so I asked the question, what type of healthcare system or what type of doctor is best equipped to handle emergencies of non-communicable diseases? Hmm. Heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, trauma. I say it's, it's emergency medicine, emergency physicians, an emergency <clears throat> care system. So, you know, we should focus on prevention and we should focus on public health. If you look at Gates Foundation and a lot of the, the major global 
health policy makers. They're really focusing on primary care, primary care, primary care, and prevention. And that's, that's what we should do, and we should do that. Except even if all the preventive measures were in place tomorrow, even if they all started tomorrow, if we ate well and we exercised and we watched our smoking and drinking and, and all of those, and we had a good GP and good insurance, and even if all those things were in place tomorrow, we're still going to have unscheduled need of accidents, heart attacks, stroke, cancer, diabetes. We'll have them probably at a lesser degree. They mm-hmm. probably won't be as overwhelming and urgent, but we'll still have them. And then, of course, how, how quickly are those preventive effects going to kick in? When you look at all the statistics and all the, the global burden of disease data, it really shows emergency is really needed in every country, and it's needed in almost every country now. So uh, now there are about 55 or 60 countries that have emergency medicine as a specialty. Every year, the number goes up by one or two or three countries. You know, back in 1968 and 69, there were zero countries that had emergency as a specialty. Now there are 60 plus, and in the next 20 or 30 years, we'll probably pass the 150 or 160 mark. So we're in this interesting period now where 30 years ago, the world didn't know how to build emergency medicine and didn't have any countries with it. And 30 years from now, it'll be done or it'll be up and running or at least they'll be building it in almost every country. Kind of the same way every country has surgery now and every country has internal medicine now. So we're in this interesting period. So these like three major divisions of what is the state of emergency medicine in different countries in the world. The first division is we could call so-called mature systems, and that's a handful of countries, five, six, seven countries that have mature systems. And that's the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, and then maybe a couple others. Then there's this middle group where there may be 20 or 30 countries that are somewhere in the middle of building their emergency systems. And then there's this third group of countries that are underdeveloped in terms of their emergency systems that have little to nothing. Right now, there are about uh, 55 countries that have national societies. The U.S. has multiple national societies, American Academy of Emergency Medicine, American College of Emergency Physicians, SAEM, ACOEP. Some countries have one or two societies, but right now there are about 65 national societies from about 50 countries. There are also regional societies like the European Society for Emergency Medicine, Asian Society for Emergency Medicine, the African Federation for Emergency Medicine, which I helped them start, starting in Cape Town. And then there are other groups in formation, like the Gulf Federation for Emergency Medicine, the six countries, seven countries in uh, the Middle East, the uh, Nordic Federation for Scandinavia, the Pan-Pacific Association. So there are regional societies. And then there's the big peak organization, the kind of umbrella society, the society of all the other societies, called the IFEM, which is the International Federation for Emergency Medicine, which is 25 years old last year. And it's the society of all the societies. And I'm a board member of the IFEM, and we're working towards bringing countries together, learning from each other, advancing emergency medicine as a policy point, as a, an answer to some of these non-communicable disease problems that we just talked about. You know, on the lips of every health minister in the world right now is primary care, primary care, primary care. But 15 years ago, that wasn't true. They were talking about something else 15 years ago. I think what they needed to start talking about is acute care, acute care, emergency care, emergency medicine. That should be the number one on their lips, their new priorities. So I think if you look around the world, you see emergency medicine is kind of a work in progress right now. 
It's not at its early stages like it was 20, 30 years ago, but it's nowhere near done yet. So we're kind of in the middle of this stage. So it's exciting for me to be involved in this kind of window period of emergency medicine where if I had become interested in this 30 years ago, we didn't have a lot of the answers. Whereas if I came in 30 years from now, it would have been done already. Somebody else would have done it. So it's exciting to be involved with how do you build emergency systems country by country by country. Very true. You can go to AEM's board director site and see the very extensive list of Dr. Mulligan's accomplishments and associations that he's a part of that gives him a wealth of knowledge to speak on this topic. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast from AEM's RSA. Thank you again to Dr. Mulligan for taking the opportunity, taking the time out to speak to us during this very busy schedule here in Orlando. And uh, don't forget to tune in to more episodes. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.